Some of you, no doubt, are familiar with the name Fred Phelps. Fred uh, died this past March. Um, for any of you who may have been paying attention to the course of his ministry, he was the pastor at Westboro Church in Topeka, Kansas. And he had a very, a very engaged ministry, I must say, over the course of many years. He knew how to spin the media better than most, and he sought the attention as best he could. Some of you may remember how he and his church members, mainly family, it is really an extended family type of church where he has been pastor, but how they would show up at... Um, it used to be they would just show up anywhere and they would would protest, but they began to show up in the past few years at military funerals. I don't know if this is beginning to ring a bell at all now with you, but his church members would show up with placards with large signs that uh, purported uh, to show the very essence of what uh, he was about and what his church was about, um, God hates fags was their main message. There were any number of other ways that they wrote that in no uncertain terms on those signs. But his main, his main notoriety was that anti-gay activism. And he spoke it with such fervor that it was offensive, not only to people outside of the church, but even to those within the church. Do you know who I'm speaking of now, this man, Fred Phelps? I know that I've had a number of conversations over the course of the years about his chosen way of doing church and I haven't spoken to a single person yet that had much respect for him. And I'm grateful for that. I am also grateful that his church was not a part of this great denomination. But that does not, does not let us off easy. Like it or not, Fred Phelps' reputation plays off on who we are because... Fred Phelps did not distinguish that he was speaking for a denomination. He was speaking for God and specifically for the church. In the way in which he communicated, he sent a message that was offensive to many, many people across our nation. Now, you may be saying, well, the gospel has to be offensive at a certain point in order to get the message across. But let me tell you, Fred was not gathering people in. He was scattering people in the way in which he communicated. You and I bear his reputation, especially among those that do not know us, and know us to be a loving folk here at Pittman Park. Since moving to Statesboro, 
a year ago, I have had any number of conversations throughout town. I don't know what it is, but several of those have been confessional in nature to the point, not that they occurred in any of them in my office, but that a number of people have shared with me their their orientation. They felt compelled for one reason or the other. I don't know if it's just having a new pastor in town to share with me that at least in two cases that they were in same-sex relationship. Now, in my work, I always ask people to come to church. I always do. And in both of these cases, I specifically stated that I hoped that they would come to Pittman Park, that I believed that God's umbrella was large enough for all of us to gather under. And in saying that, I knew that I was speaking for those of us who wish to share God's love with all God's people. In one case, I left the person wondering what they were going to do with the invitation, but the other case, the fellow said to me, we will not be able to come because we are not welcome there. I said, at Pittman Park? You're not welcome? They said, no, we've never been to Pittman Park. I said, good. I said, good. I said, so they said, but we have attended a number of other churches to the point that we felt that we were not welcome. And so because of that, I'm not sure that we will come to Pittman Park either. Now, I would like to say to you that we live in a world in which the church was large enough to share God's grace in such a way as to permit all to find their way toward God in a gracious environment. But it is not the case. What is God calling us to be here today? It worries me, some of these statistics that both Jonathan and I have been using, which are very well-founded statistics, that that 91% of the young adults in our nation consider that the church is anti-homosexual. And because of that, they want nothing to do with it. You and I realize that this is our most divisive issue, don't you? Y'all are probably nervous about what I'm saying, and I'm nervous, I can tell you, about what you're hearing. Since 1972, this has been a struggle 
for our denomination. We didn't invent it, but we sure have perfected it. It's been a struggle for our general conference that has debated, it seems, all sides of the issue and cannot find any kind of satisfactory ground upon which to stand. There are some that believe it will ultimately split the denomination. I pray that this will not be the case. But let me tell you that in the midst of our struggle, the words that are a part of our book of discipline have been honed to the degree that they have tried to be an open and embracing statement that would help to welcome people and also define where we are as a church right now. We affirm that all persons are individuals of sacred worth created in the image of God. This is where this section of the social principles begins. All persons need the ministry of the church in their struggles for human fulfillment, as well as the spiritual and emotional care of a fellowship that enables reconciling relationships with God and others and with self. The United Methodist Church, it goes on, does not condone the practice of homosexuality and considers this practice incompatible with Christian teaching. Now, that is a point that is up for much debate among the denomination. We affirm that God's grace is available to all. We will seek to live together in Christian community, welcoming, forgiving, and loving one another as Christ has loved and accepted us. We implore families and churches not to reject or condemn lesbian and gay members and friends. We commit ourselves to be in ministry for and with all persons. At its very essence, the United Methodist Church is an entity of hospitality. You and I, by our definition as God's people, are called to be welcoming of all that he sends our way. And yet, there still continues to be much debate on this matter. Some of you have followed not only the preaching on Sunday mornings over these past several weeks, when Christians get it wrong is our title. It's taken from the title of a book by Adam Hamilton. But some of you have had the opportunity to participate on Wednesday nights as well in the study. One of the things that you may not realize about Adam Hamilton is that he is a very moderate soul. And he seeks as well that our denomination remain unified and find our way through this issue. Not that everybody will think the same way, but there's room under this roof for some of the differences that we share together. At the last general conference, Adam Hamilton and his friend, another very outstanding United Methodist pastor came up with an amendment to the statement that is already a part of the book of discipline. 
I won't read it in its entirety, but I do want to read a section of it that gets down to what they were proposing. Adam and Mike stated, it is likely that this issue will continue to be a source of conflict within the church. We have a choice. We can divide or we can commit to disagree with compassion, grace, and love while continuing to seek to understand the concerns of the other. Given these options, schism or respectful coexistence, we choose the latter. We commit to disagree with respect and love. We commit to love all persons, and above all, we pledge to seek God's will. With regard to homosexuality, as with so many other issues, United Methodists adopt the attitude of John Wesley, who once said, though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike. May we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion. Without all doubt, we may. That amendment was struck down by General Conference because the church wishes to be of one opinion when the evidence is that there is a broad spectrum of opinion on this subject. You and I must learn a way to communicate lovingly with each other and lovingly with the world around us or we will lose connection with the world around us. This is not game day politics that I'm talking about. Yesterday... I I have a sister-in-law and her husband who watched the South Carolina and Georgia game. You should have heard them hollering at each other. They were at opposite ends of the field, let me tell you. It was absolute bedlam in the house as they screamed their opinions of what was going on. She told me before the game started, she said, you know, Bill, she said, we're a house divided. And Lord, were they. But there is this understanding amidst them that they are connected in marriage too. And I know they get over it quickly. Now, let me tell you, This is far more important of an issue than just game day politics. People's very essence is, their essence is dependent upon you and I communicating to them in such a way as to receive the grace of God. How many times do we lend ourselves to directly judging others? Not looking at our own sins, but looking at others' sins. Directly, perhaps even without our knowing it, indirectly. Sending the message that there are some 
that are in God's grace and some that are outside of it. You and I must make the decision who we will be as God's people. I know what the scriptures say. I've read it. I'm not going to stand before you and say that there aren't passages in Leviticus or in the writings of Paul that raise questions around this very issue. But you and I have tended to draw the line in the sand on just this one issue. The choices that we make about what we are going to tend to in Leviticus is totally up to us, it seems. And we don't select those passages that have anything to do with us individually. And let me ask you this. If we're talking about being faithful to the Scripture, if we are being faithful to the writing of Leviticus, Leviticus says that we are to kill homosexuals. Are you ready to press that issue? More importantly, do you see that as the way in which Christ related to the world around him? Peter's vision is fascinating here. God works in so many different places at the same time. And there he came in Caesarea to this, this Roman soldier, well-respected throughout the community. And he sent a vision that Cornelius was to send for Peter to come and to be in his house so that he could learn from Peter. At the same time, Peter, who was not too far away, but at a distance, he was feeling the heat of the noonday sun and he was getting hungry. In order to bide his time, he went up on the roof of the house. And while he was there, he began to be sleepy and to be filled with the vision of God. I want to think of it as sort of a grandmother's quilt that was let down to him three times in succession. It came down once, and on that quilt there were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. And the words, take and eat this. And then it was taken up and away again. Again it was let down, and he peered over the edge and saw the same there. It was taken away, and then a third time. How many times does it take for Peter to get this? It only took one vision for Cornelius. For Peter, over and over again. The passage goes on, one of the parts that we skipped over to shorten it just a little bit. It goes on after this. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision, how could you be puzzled, Peter? Don't you get it? 
But he didn't get it because God was still working with him. Finally, when he did receive these messengers from Cornelius and went to meet with Cornelius, Cornelius was overwhelmed at what God was doing. And yet Peter was still coming into his own. Here in this passage, it says, as he talked with him, he went in and found that many had assembled. And he said to them, you yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. How is it that they know that? Because it's in the Bible. Peter had been trained up in the Bible. And he knew to keep his distance. And yet God was doing a new thing through this vision in Peter's and Cornelius' life. And isn't this like Jesus? Always his way to be drawing us into some new thing. Wasn't it Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount that said, Judge not that you be not judged. But then he lived that out among us. You remember the story of Jesus as he sat down beside Jacob's well with the Samaritan woman? Again, defying common decency. Every one of his disciples were puzzled at how Jesus could make such an error in judgment. And yet in conversation with her, he shared living water. Even when she admitted, after he pointed it out, that she'd been married five times and was living with someone that she was not committed to in marriage, did Jesus condemn her? No. You may be thinking to yourself, well, Jesus, when he would meet people like this, he would say, go and sin no more. And I want to tell you that that is the case, at least in another passage that I'm thinking of right now about the woman who was caught in adultery. But in the case of this Samaritan woman, there is no such word. Did he not have an opinion about it? I have a feeling he did have an opinion about it. I might have been the one to point out to her that she could have made some other choices. But Jesus was not sharing with her more than the grace of God in that place. Jesus comes to bring to us a broad understanding of God's grace. We want to fit everyone into tidy packages. But people don't fit into tidy packages. In the church, I, I have to use a lot of patience with some of you. And I bet you are having to use a little bit of patience with me right now. But think about your families for just a moment. Do you, ever, do you ever have to use patience with members of your family that think and say and do things that don't really represent who you are? Huh? Do you ever have to deal with that? And you love on. You love on because why? Because they are a part of who you are. 
Does that mean that anything goes? No, but it does mean that we live within a certain respect for each other. Some of you may have been aware at the beginning of this service, uh, when I'm wearing this stole, it gets all out of kilter at times, you know, and I'm walking around and first grace came up. She said, let me fix you, you know, and uh, and then and then Becky came over and she said, let me fix what grace didn't quite get right, you know, and so I, I I'm always being fixed by other people, but but there are certain things, certain things that we need to be aware of that we're overstepping bounds. Do you know this in your family? Do you know how far to go with certain people in your family before they tell you to back off? They have to make their own decisions as to how God is going to work with them and draw them through. I, I was sharing this past Wednesday with our study group that my dear grandmother now passed on and my grandfather, um, that they both dipped snuff. Do you know what snuff is? I can remember going and sitting on my grandmother's lap and looking up into her loving eyes and there would be this little trickle of <laughs> brown stuff running down her chin. And when we would leave, I would ask my mother and dad, what is that? And they said, it's snuff. We don't do snuff. We don't do snuff. And I was okay with that being the definition of who we were, but I was also okay with the idea that she did dip snuff, and I loved her, and it had nothing to do with how loving she could be as well. Now, I just put that before you and asked you to think about this. Pray about it. I request to you, will you join me in making our congregation a place where all God's children are welcomed, love, and grace are unconditional? Can you make this a place where every person's giftedness is welcomed?